Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And you can listen to us live every Wednesday morning from 10 to 11 Eastern Time and to my new show on Thursdays, The Social Workers on FM Station in Albany, New York, WCDB FM 90.9. That's 9 to 10 Eastern Time. But coming up in this hour, we have two guests. Our first guest is Nicholas Palacci. Now, Nicholas and his pal, his buddy, uh, two Scottish chums, got into a handmade British sports car and traveled America in a nationwide search for the best craftsmen and artisans in the U.S. They were awed and impressed by the amazing American craftsmen they met. Well, um, Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. And I have to tell everybody, you're, you have this kind of an amazing job, one that most of us probably don't know too much about. You are the Balvini brand ambassador for the Western USA, uh, and Balvini is a handcrafted single malt scotch whiskey, which I happen to love, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. So that's what you do in one part of your life, but the second part was getting together with Andrew Weir, who also works for Valvini, and you what? You went across the country looking for very specific kinds of artisans? That's correct. Uh, we're very fortunate at the Valvini, where we're still a family-owned uh, single malt whiskey producer, and that, that, believe it or not, is very rare. There's only a handful of, of family-owned distilleries left in Scotland, and the Balvenie happens to be one of them. And we still make everything by hand. So if there's a job that requires a human being, then we have a human being do it. You know, we're not automated. We're not trying to make things super fast and quicker. We still have, you know, we still grow our own barley. We still have a classic traditional floor malting. We still have our own coppersmith, Dennis McBain. You know, we have our own cooperage where we build our own casks. And we have our, our, our uh, malt master, David Stewart. So when you visit the Balvenie Distillery, I can actually introduce you to the people. You know, there's 156 of us all working hard to make their single malt scotch whiskey taste the way it does. And myself and Andrew, over a dram of whiskey, of course, had a, had a, a light bulb moment conversation where we decided it would be wonderful to travel the United States to basically create a website where people could nominate artisans and crafts people and myself and Andrew would drive a handmade car across the United States and try and visit as many of these craftspeople as possible. 
Uh, we were just delighted that our bosses thought it was a good idea too, because I think they thought we were maybe at it, but they just thought it was so perfect fit for the Balvenie to, to be that platform for craftsmanship. And really to, to, to find these unsung heroes, and some of them are already very, very successful, but just to find these people and to celebrate craftsmanship within the United States. Well, I can understand we want, why we want to celebrate the craftsmanship of your of the single malt scotch whiskey, but what about these other artisans? You know, why is it important for us, especially now in this day and age in America, why do we have to preserve in the practice and art of craftsmanship? You know, and this certainly isn't a slant at other companies, but there are, you know, the, unfortunately, we, we live in a world of mass production. We live in a world where people try to make things cheaper, faster, and quicker. You know, a lot of our business is outsourced to, to other countries, and, and, and that's fine. You know, we, we rely on that trade. But it's also nice to know that some of these amazing companies are still on their own doorstep. You know, people that hand-make local foods, and I think a lot of people now in this day and age take time and effort to visit the, the farmers' markets and the, the local craft people from that point of view. But that, you know, if you if you visit a farmers' market and you can extend that reach to visiting people that still do other things that you might purchase, you know, handmade shoes, handmade cowboy boots, handmade suits, handmade chocolate, handmade ice cream, handmade cheese. Uh, you know, there's there's been a multitude of different craft people that we've visited really excited me you know when we started with the idea that's all it was you know it was an idea and it was a learning curve from city to city and you know we started at Key West back in March of this year and we have literally driven right across the United States right through the Gulf Coast right through Texas right over to California completely up the California coast up to Washington and then back through the Midwest uh, right down to St. Louis. Now the, the second part of the, that roadshow started el- earlier this year sorry, with Andrew, who's then taken it right across the East Coast, and we're now he's currently with the car in, in New York, and that's, that's fantastic. We've visited 27 states. We've visited literally hundreds of craftspeople from different walks of life, and I think it's important to support these craftspeople. I really do. When you say different people from different walks of life, I'm curious about that, Nicholas, because you mentioned a lot of different crafts, and actually they sound, I mean, from shoes to tables to, uh, to cheeses, um, and to quilts, et cetera, but you mentioned different people, very diverse groups of people. What gets them, what, you know, what is the background between these, uh, you know, for these people who get into this very specific kind of artisan, um, businesses? You know, I think that the one, I would never say that there's a mold for these types of people. I think there's been a huge diversity in the types of people that we've met. But one thing that is always constant is the passion. And that is undying. These people believe that they should do something different, that they don't have to conform to, you know, it's not always about going to school. It's not always about, you know, maybe there's a trade to be learned there. And I'm a big advocate for that. I think that, you know, sometimes we overlook that or we, we undervalue that. And and really this is this is which to me has been the real stepping stone for all of these craft people. Some of them I remember one chap in particular in Dallas, his name is Danny Caminus. And this was a gentleman that did bit very well for himself. He was a corporate executive, but he was miserable. He was literally miserable in his job and he sat down with his very understanding and believing wife. Uh, Carol and they decided together that he was going to start working and he was going to start hand making furniture. So going from a corporate executive of handing 
and, and his, his process behind it was he didn't want his wife's work to be something that, you know, paper reports that would fill up landfills. And he decided he wanted to create furniture that people would love and cherish and become part of their households and families. And I just loved that story. It just, and it was one of the first visits that I had. And this, this gentleman was just so honest and open and, and put so much of his heart into his work that you couldn't turn around and you couldn't look at his work and say, actually, this isn't spectacular because every single piece was unique and every single piece was breathtaking. So, and Nicholas, it, it sounds that. like it... And it you know, not only this gentleman, but many of the other ones that you met with, um, it really affects them. You, you say that the passion is what stands out. They're really passionate what they do. And I imagine that that's, you know, you see that in their products because it isn't this mass-made kind of stuff that, that's, you know, that you buy in the department stores. But uh, it, it's very different in terms of the quality of the work that they do. Of course. Of course, and you know, there's a, another woman in particular, another great story. Now she's become a good friend of mine, actually, is a, a woman named Julie Pesh. And Julie, uh, she was really just a, you know, a nutritionist. She wanted to look into the nutritional value of chocolate, believe it or not, and wrote a book on it and then decided, I'm promoting healthy chocolate and, and the qualities of, of eating chocolate responsibly within moderation, of course, and, and the good quality chocolate. And she decided, I should own a chocolate store. And that's exactly what she did. She bought a small store in Denver, just to say Denver, Littleton, Denver, and started making chocolates using completely all-natural, all-organic, you know, no preservatives, no unnatural oils. Everything was really just spectacular, you know, organic oils for flavorings. And the chocolate is, I don't know if you're a chocolate fan or not. But I'm a chocolate. I don't know. I really don't know anyone who isn't. <laughs> <laughs> and if they are, then shame on them. Yeah. But uh, it is wonderful. They, I mean, these chocolates are just breathtaking. And Julie was just such a wonderful, energetic person. You know, it was so, so, it's difficult to be in most of these craftspeople's company and not get excited about what they do. Did most of these people, when they decided to start these businesses, and it sounds like they were doing other things before, they didn't necessarily begin that in their early careers, did they get support? I mean, what were the, some of the stories behind it? I mean, you know, it, you know get, you're passionate about something. You mentioned the CEO. He decided he wanted to make furniture. His wife was supportive. Was that usually the stories, or do they have to overcome a lot of stuff to get involved and to be able to just say, hey, I'm going to follow my dream? No, no, not. I mean, that, that was a very unique story to see somebody who was already in, in a successful career do a complete 180-degree turn on a career path. Uh, but a lot of the craftspeople that we visited have not been as fortunate. You know, there's a lot of people who really, you know, they, they, may, they don't necessarily have funding behind them, and it's just about them. You know, some of them are, some of the craftspeople have really been struggling to, to make a living, but that doesn't deter them. It's not about living a fancy lifestyle for these people. It's about doing something, waking up every morning and going to work with the enthusiasm that they have, that's a blessing. So being able to go to a job where you go, do you know what, I really love what I do. And I, I consider myself to be in that position. I love what I do and I'm very fortunate. There's a lot of people out there that aren't, that don't love the jobs that they do and, and that, that, that's unfortunate for them. And I, you know, I really feel that they have uh, other parts of their life that makes up for that. But I really think that for these craftspeople, that's, that's it. They live and breathe their craft. They, they have so much passion that it's not about making a, 
you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and having that money in the bank. For a lot of these people, they're, they're struggling to make a living. And I think that's why this Rearcraft Roadshow from the Valvenia is important, because it creates a platform for these people to talk about themselves. And we created a dedicated website, uh, com slash roadshow, where we encouraged uh, every craft person that we've visited or that's been nominated, we've, we've given them a space on our website so you can go on and you can read through those, those, those craft people. But also, if you know somebody or if you are one of those people, you can submit a request, you can nominate a craft person to become part of a roadshow for next year. And that, that, that to me, is a hugely important part of what this process is about. Yeah, that's a terrific idea. I mean, giving everybody that opportunity. I want you to mention the website once again because you said it kind of quickly. I want to make sure everybody has that website and they can go to, uh, will go and know to go to it. No problem. And I apologize for my thick Scottish accent as well. (laughs) I love it. It is hard. You know, it's not so easy to understand, but you're doing great. Yeah. Thank you so much. It is www.thebalveni. So T H E. B A L V E N I E dot com forward slash roadshow all one word. So and and we're really looking for this is a huge ask for, for all your listeners. Please, if you know somebody, please make a point of just sitting down thinking who those people will be. I'm sure there's somebody who who does something by hand in your local area, and just jump online, come and see us at the Balvenie, and nominate them for next year. Terrific. Right, now, there's another thing that you're also doing I want you to, to talk to us about, um, besides having you have a blog, but you also, there's an upcoming documentary. Tell us about that. What is it? That's right. Well, we've actually had a film crew come with us for a lot of our journey, and the film crew have, have, have really tapped into to filming these artisans in their, in their own workplace. So it's very raw, it's very natural, and it allows us to really, again, it's another platform, medium platform for showcasing these artisans. And what we're trying to do is film as many of these craftspeople as possible, create a documentary which we're going to put into different streams, you know, we're going to try and put it onto it's going to be on, it's already on YouTube and certain sections of it are already on YouTube, and so you can just look up Balvenie Roadshow and you'll be able to see a couple of, of film excerpts of myself and Andrew visiting some of these craftspeople already. Uh, and, and that's important, but we're also going to try and create a full film documentary that will screen towards the end of the year, maybe kind of a 25-minute, 30-minute full, basically celebration of craftsmanship. Yeah. Well, it's good, because when you get the visual, that, that'll be, I mean, that, uh, that really does give everybody the opportunity to participate and see the whole thing. And there's another piece, talking about visuals, if you go, um, I see, this, uh, I think I have a picture of you here standing beside your car, your handmade British sports car. How is that, mm-hmm. traveling across the country? You know what? It's been very fun. It has been very fun. We, we decided that our mode of transportation, if we are the most hand-crafted single malt scotch whiskey and we're going to travel the United States talking about craftsmanship, then we have to do it in a handmade piece of transportation. So we, 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 we basically bought a, a Morgan sports car from the Morgan uh, Motor Company. It's a British motor uh, company. And this is a handmade car. So this is a, a, it's a plus eight Morgan which has the chassis of the car is actually made of wood. It's made of ash. Uh, so really, they make, I think, 250 of these cars every year by hand. Uh, you know, they're, they're very rare in that aspect. 
and 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 we literally drove that right across the United States. Don't get me wrong, it's a small roadster car, so we've had a hairy moments with traffic right across the United States. Imagine <laughs> these eighteen wheel these eighteen wheeler trucks rolling up next to us in a tiny little wagon, uh, trying not to get squashed. So we've had a hairy moments, but for the best part, it's been a lot of fun. And it's certainly it's drawn a lot of attraction, and that's what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to draw attraction. We're trying to make a make a little bit of noise about about the about the people within each each market and within each city. I guess one of the things, one of the words that comes to mind is quality. You know, you're talking about this handmade Morgan car, 250 in the whole world. How much do they cost? Oh, that would be telling. Uh, a lot <laughs> of money. A lot of money. <laughs> but. Uh, for all of these things, I think I think that's the thing. You know, some people say, "Oh, you know, I can go and buy a suit, you know, that's cheaper." And yeah, you can. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not saying that a, a handmade suit is going to be a cheaper option than a than a than a, a suit off the rack. That's not the case. Or if I, you know, you can you can certainly find these other goods made cheaper, faster, and quicker. But the quality is what stands out. And I think you made an excellent point there, Catherine. So for me, you know, the the, the quality aspect of seeing a handmade piece of furniture with the love and attention and passion has gone into it, or a handmade suit, or a handmade pair of shoes, or even a handmade chocolate bar, the quality level compared to something that comes off a production line is night and day. Yeah. And handmade yeah, that's bicycles, actually, uh, that's an interesting, you know, as someone who likes to ride bicycles and has a family of bicycle riders, um, how... What handmade bicycles? What are they? Uh, are there a lot of them across the country, or or For handmade bicycles? I think there's a handful of people still in the United States that make different bicycles by hand, and those could be made with uh, wood, with cast iron, with steel, with aluminium or aluminium. Sorry, as you say here in the United States, and and a lot of different carbon fibers as well. And I think it's it's worth going on our website where we've actually listed all the craftspeople who have been nominated, not just the ones that we've had to visit, because obviously trying to visit hundreds of these people is, 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 is we're trying to see as many as possible, don't get me wrong, and we're trying to go back to see them next year as well, if we've not seen them this year. But the ones that we've that have just been nominated, we've given them a little space on our website. So you can go through the list of artisans, the list of craftspeople, and we've given you know them a space to talk about themselves and to put their website up. So it's really just, this is becoming almost a hub for craft, you know, a hub for craftsmanship and a hub for artisans. And that's what we're really hoping this website will be. You know, this will be the place that if you want to find something handmade, you'll come to the balvenie.com uh, slash roadshow and, and you'll be able to see something that's handmade of whatever your taste may be. Well, I mean, that a very unique idea. And one last question before we say goodbye. We've got a couple more minutes left. Um, Nicholas, what was the one, or was there one craft that was a surprise to you? The most, I don't know if you can maybe label it as the most unique craft or artisan, but one that maybe stood out and one that you were, that, that surprised you. One that really surprised me was a company called Sweet Action Ice Cream. And believe it or not, handmade ice cream. And people kind of, you know, I think it, people kind of think of that as, oh, it's quite a nice thing to see. But this started with a, a really, really nice guy and his girlfriend uh, in Denver, where they decided that they were going to make their own ice cream at home. And they bought, you know, like a little Cousinart ice cream maker, and that's where it all started. And that grew 
and grew and grew with them trying different flavours, creating a healthier style of ice cream, not using, uh, you know, uh, saturated fats or sugars or preservatives, but we had to find locally grown sourced ingredients for all the ice cream. So everything that we put into the ice cream is sourced from no, no further than 10 miles away from the store in Denver. And the ice cream was magnificent. And I just thought that was such a great story of people that they didn't want to start a business. It wasn't like they said, oh, let's go and start a business. They, they just said, we love ice cream, let's make ice cream for ourselves. And that grew into them being real masters of a craft of making ice cream. You know, they bought a store they've become very, very successful and they've done well for themselves. And I, I, I love stories for that, you know. I lo- yeah, I love that story too because I love ice cream. So definitely I'm going to go on the site and look them up. We have to say goodbye. Nicholas Palacci, it's been great. And uh, good luck with this whole project. Let's mention the website one more time. Um, and uh, I'll be on the website following you as will, I'm sure, most of my listeners. And uh, also looking for that upcoming documentary film, um, Nicholas Palacci, who is the brand ambassador for uh, Balvini Scotch Whiskey. And um, so let's have the website one more time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on the show. It was was wonderful to speak to you. And that that website, once again, is www.thebalvini.com forward slash roadshow. So T-H-E-B-A-L. V E N I E dot com forward slash roadshow. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Catherine. Bye bye. I'm Catherine Zox. We have another guest coming up in this next half hour. You've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Our next guest is also uh, a unique gentleman, author of The Power of Positive Fitness Maximizing Physical, Mental, and Spiritual Health. Uh, John Rowley, and maybe many of you have seen or heard of him, is a fitness contributor to Fox News, Martha Stewart, and the Wall Street Journal. And his new book, uh, which he has just released, is a new whole-person per- fitness plan that when we say whole fitness, we mean a plan that encompasses the physical, the mental, and the spiritual components of health. So that's what's unique about his fitness plan, and uh, he's going to be here to talk to us in just a few minutes, so don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us live every Wednesdays, 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And you can also listen to me on my new show, The Social Workers, on WCDB-FM, Albany, New York. That's Thursdays live, 10, 9 to 10, every Thursday morning. But, as promised, my next guest, John M. Rowley, author of The Power of Positive Fitness, Maximizing Physical, Mental, and Spiritual Health, which I have to assume that most of us or all of us want to do. And uh, there's a picture, and I think it's John, I'll have to ask him, on the cover of the book looking very fit. Um, so he definitely I, exemplifies his, what he talks about in his book. Uh, John survived a near-fatal car accident, and he was a college athlete, and uh, at that time, then he realized that physical strength alone would not bring him happiness and the fulfillment he desired in his life, so he had a long and painful recovery, and in the process, he began to appreciate the need for not only a strong body, but a strong mind and spirit as well, so hence his new book, The Power of Positive Fitness. Maximizing Physical, Mental, and Spiritual Health. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, John. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, you are author, speaker, fitness contributor, Fox News, Martha Stewart, Wall Street Journal, because you are really concerned with the whole person. Obviously, that's what you what the book is about. What does that mean, though? You know, I just kind of just, I, we talk about the title, Maximizing Mental, uh, Physical, and Spiritual Health, but how do we do that? Well, coming up with a book title is really difficult. That's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Yeah, ba- basically, basically, my what I talk about and what I really want to impress upon people is, you know, I talk a lot about physical fitness simply because we've got such a um, such an issue in this country with obesity. But if you're physically weak, what's going to happen is your mind and spirit are going to follow. So you need, I, I think most people need to start getting into good physical shape. But if you're in good physical shape, now I was involved with the bodybuilding industry for a while when I owned the gym, and um, I'm still involved with it to a degree because it's a passion of mine, but I'm really a businessman. But I saw in the bodybuilding world, guys get on the covers of magazines or fitness models or whatever else. They look great on a magazine, but they can't function in real life. They can't hold down a job. They have uh, broken relationships. Then I went into Manhattan real estate as a young guy. I was the youngest senior VP ever in Manhattan real estate. And I saw people I wanted to emulate in business. But then as I got to know them, I saw that they were leaving a wake of disaster behind themselves, too. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> they were in the bar by 1 o'clock drinking their lunch and just, yeah. you know, just shot. So I think you need to be well-rounded. And I came about this, you know, it's hard to believe every press release you read. I didn't come to this realization just after my accident. I, came, I had my accident, which was horrific. 
And then I made, you know, I came back stronger, became a janitor. But then I went into Manhattan real estate. And what happened was, well, I was still in my late. Well, I mean, 20s. let's go back to that because if that's not so, you know, a near fatal accident, a janitor, and then Manhattan real estate. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about the process. Well, let me let me finish first, then I'll tell you. The whole okay. key, what, what I realized was that I was completely out of balance. I had, I was unhappy. I achieved everything I wanted, and was unhappy. But to answer your question, yeah, what happened was I was a I was a uh, very high level runner. I was going to college in Kansas. I came home for the summer. And uh, the night before I was supposed to go back to school, I fell asleep behind the wheel. I was just tired and fell asleep behind the wheel. And they said I probably gunned it about a mile back because I remember wanting to pull over. And I was going very slow. And I hit a tree head on, driver's side, at about 90 miles an hour. And my right hand was back by my elbow. My left foot was crushed and destroyed. They never thought I'd walk again. All my ribs were broken. My breastbone was split in half. My nose was cut off of my face. So if anybody listening has a nose... They've got it. They've got it. Heads and tails above me. <laughs> <laughs> well, your nose looks like it's recuperated. As I'm looking at the picture on the on your on your book on your new book. Yeah, if you get close to me, you can see it. I was supposed to have another surgery, and the surgeon that I worked with in New York moved to Florida. He's probably retired by now. This was the, this was 30 years ago. Oh, but so it, it's been a while. But okay, so then you all right. This is a horrific accident. How did you, I mean, I'm always curious as, you know, some people go through those kinds of crises and they become depressed, they become unable to move uh, mentally, spiritually, and physically, and yet you, something in you said, no, this, I'm going to just, this is going to be a turning point in a positive direction. Yeah, it was a turning point. Uh, I don't know if it was positive. <laughs> I didn't feel positive <laughs> in, the, in the beginning. Um, I made a decision not to look back. I was never going to be able to run again ever. Um, at that t- at that point, it was questionable whether or not, whether or not I'd be able to walk without the use of a walker or a cane. Um, I, when I my room was like a shrine to my athletic abilities. I had medals and posters and you know just everything, trophies all over the wall. My mom hung up, and yeah, it was nice. But when I was laying there in bed and looking at those things, it wasn't empowering me. So what I did is a little bit at a time. When my parents weren't home, once I started to recover a bit, I threw them all away. Now, 30 years later, do I wish I had them? Yeah, I wish I had them all to show my kids and grandchildren, but I'm, I don't. I needed to look forward, not back. So I just looked forward, and I focused on what I could do. I didn't focus on what I couldn't do, which a lot of people... See, that, yeah, that is a different... That's really important for people to hear, because, you know, you're talking about lying in bed looking at all your trophies. I think most people would sit there looking at what they did before and, yeah, mourning the loss of, of that rather than, do you know, more important to throw those things away. Yeah, I didn't get upset at all, in fact, not once uh, during the recovery process. You know, years later, you look back, oh, I wish I would have did this or did that. But it, it, it didn't really, even to this day, uh, you know, I really have no regrets because I did, I did my best in everything I could do. But after about a year or so, my dad was able to get me a job at a New York City school as a janitor in the evenings. So people, you know, I, I couldn't go in during the day because I didn't look good. My nose was, my, my face was still messed up at that point and all. I was on a walker. So he got me a job as a janitor. I... The, the custodian engineer, the guy in charge of me, told me, he goes, I don't care how hurt you are, you need to do the amount of work that these men are doing. I don't care to stay all night. And he was doing that just to push me along. He was a good guy. But after about a week, he came up to me, and he goes, man, he goes, you're outworking everybody. You've got one leg <laughs> and you're outworking. But what I did is I just consistently, you know, the skills that you learn as an athlete is failure is part of being an athlete. When you're a runner, you hit the wall, which is failure. When you lift weights, you don't grow until you fail. 
So yeah. failure. I have to a me son never... actually who has always, you know, who tell who was a, a, a swimmer, captain of the swim team, and also a swimmer in college, and says exactly what you're saying. All those skills that you learn as a, as an athlete, you can apply to. Well, now he's an actor, and you would think that they would be different, but they're the same kinds of skills. They're the exact same skills, and your son is. If he's an actor, he's utilizing those because he's get you know, actors get turned down on a daily basis. Exactly. And it's, you have to go through a hundred no's in order to get, get that one yes, but the one yes can be very valuable. When I'm in business, I can always tell the people who were athletes when they were younger. Because when something goes wrong, when the economy switches or you know, things change, they don't crumple. They go, okay, what can we do now? And you, and you go on to the next thing. Right. Now what are we going to do about it? We have a problem. What's the solution? Exactly. And being energetic is part of it. When I went yeah. to Manhattan real estate, um, I went in as a young man. I was in my 20s. Um, previous to that, I was a janitor. I never finished school. And I interviewed with over 300 companies in Manhattan. I got turned down by everybody. Then I found somebody foolish enough to hire me. And within probably six or eight months, I was one of the most well-known people in Manhattan real estate. I still have a lot of people, friends from that day. You know, uh, I don't know if you know Barbara Corcoran. She used to own the Corcoran Group. I know Barbara. She was on the show last year or the year before. But Barbara's one of my best friends. She's a very, very good friend of mine. Yeah, she and a dynamic personality. Doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> a great personality, great on the radio. Yes, she's very dynamic and very open like you are. Yeah, she's, well, what was funny was with Barbara, we got to know each other right in the very beginning of my career. And I was always very open where I came from. I didn't tell people that I was, you know, some smart guy. I was, you know, CB, you know, CD student, really. Uh, never graduated college. But she immediately... Um, hooked on to me, and for about two years we were looking to buy a property management company because that was my expertise. So if we would have found the right one, then her and I would have been partners in the Corcoran Group. But it didn't work out, and worked out worked out really good for her. She she got like sixty or seventy million dollars for her company. Yeah, she's been very successful at uh, at real estate, New York real estate. But you two, but your friends, you have a great. I assume you sound like you have a great relationship. Oh yeah, she endorsed. You know, she endorsed this book. Yeah. She endorsed my first book. But anyway, but with her, like even her, you know, when I was working with her, not working with her, but when I was with her, I remember one day we we took the stairs up sixty flights, and I said, "Wow!" I said, "What do you do? Do you do this to stay in shape?" She goes, "Well, it keeps me in shape." She goes, "But this way, I don't have to bump into anybody I owe money to on the elevator." <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's the mental and spiritual part of it. Yeah, so we got into Manhattan real estate. And I found out real quick that being energetic and being able to, you know, people will normally buy you if you're energetic and passionate about what you're doing. And I just use that energy, energy and passion to be able to, you know, win over boards of, you know, boards of managers in the buildings that I managed and things like that. I eventually ended up working for Harry and Leona Helmsley at Brown Harris Stevens. And it was great. But I always kept physical fitness as part of my routine. I had about one year in Manhattan real estate where I put a little bit of weight on. I was eating too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy to do in Manhattan. It is. It is. Now, in your book, because you you have actually what you have forty different examples, different people in terms of how they are able to accomplish what you talk about in the book, uh, maximizing their physical, mental, and spiritual health. All different people, very diverse group of people, um, and different lifestyles. But let's you know, I always like to put a face on it because how how do these people do? what you, I was going to say, preach. It's not preaching, what you've written about, and uh, they do it in a different way, each one of them. Yeah, I'm, actually, that, that part of the book was the most exciting to me. 
I figured if I could get 10 or 12 people to be in that section of the book, it would be a home run. And we sent out, I sent out about 10 or 11 uh, requests, but one person told another, because they're all personal friends of mine, I ended up with like 65 of them back, so we had to switch through. <laughs> and, and I did want a diverse group. I, I wanted everybody to be able to see that you can be busy and still function in life. And I think a lot of people think that success, whether it be physical fitness success at business world or at home, is the result of some major thing. And through this section, I think people will see that it's not the result of a major thing. It's the result of daily disciplines being implemented on a consistent basis. Yeah, all right, give us an example of one of the one, – choose one or two of, of these people that you think would be the most, you know, kind of exemplify what you're saying. Okay, Leanne Yeager. Uh, she's a personal friend of mine, her and her husband. Her dad is the number one guy in Amway, the number one family in the world in Amway. Okay. They're, they're very, very, very busy with, you know, traveling the world for functions and just doing all the things that they do. They're very, very busy. And she found herself, I don't want to say how much overweight in case she's listening. I have no idea how much overweight she was. But she found herself overweight, and there's a before and after picture in the book. And through just really just doing it her own way, and I know she lifted some weights and she did exercise classes and all, but she worked it around her life. She lost the weight. But not only did she lose the weight, but she found that she was more effective in other areas of her life. And I found that my pastor isn't in that section because I had him write the afterward. But the same thing was with him. When I started going to his church, he was about 40 pounds overweight. And he came back to me because, how do I get fit like you? I said, you have to get some discipline in your life, man. Stop hanging around pastors. <laughs> Be around people with some discipline. And you also have a sense joking. of humor, which helps. <laughs> he, thought I was, he knew I was joking. But I ended up bringing him to the gym the next day, and over a period of about six months, he lost 40 pounds, which he's kept off for the last four or five years. But the one thing that he told me was, he goes, he didn't realize how how little he was able to function compared to the way he can function now. He would fall asleep listening to people, you know, just things like that. I've got Ken Huff in, in the book who uh, played for the Washington Redskins for many years. He's a builder. He's very, very busy with the NFL, still doing golfing tournaments and all. You know, he hits the gym probably most days, you know, four or five days a week. And he's able to stay He's uh, 57, 58 years old and in phenomenal shape. Uh, there's another guy in there also, um, Phil Strand. I met Phil because I would see him in the gym every morning at 5 o'clock when I went to do cardio. And I'd see him there, and every week I watched him get in better and better shape. So I got a picture of, the book, of him in the book. He's a very, very, very busy executive for SAS. He travels the world. He's got, he's got an active family life. But what he does, he works it around his schedule. He gets into the gym in the morning and does his cardio for a half hour, 45 minutes. And then at lunchtime, I think SAS has a weight room there. He goes and works out at SAS at lunchtime instead of going to eat a big lunch. So the whole key with this, sec- with this section really is just the little simple disciplines that are done daily will help you to, be, help you to be successful. And at yeah. the end of each section of the book, I have what's called the lifestyle restoration cycle, which basically walks people through this. You know, exchange one bad habit a month with one good habit a month. And we've got an online thing called HabitFoundry.com that will actually help you do that for free. You can go in there and... You know, help the, help the, it helps you be successful on a regular basis. Yeah, so you just mentioned one thing which I think is very important. It's sort of one step at a time. I think people get really terrified because they think, okay, I need to lose 30 pounds, but I have to do it in a week. Well, you're not going to do it in a week. And as you said, get rid of one bad habit, one a month. You don't have to get rid of all your bad habits in one day because that becomes overwhelming. And, and something else I want to add to what you said is, yes, when you start disciplining yourself and losing weight, the world looks at you differently, too. It's not just what, I mean, don't you think that's true, John? I mean, it's not, it's not just that you are, dis, not just, but you are disciplining yourself, 
but then the reaction you get from everybody is very different. So it creates a whole new way of connecting with people. Well, you know, I have a pretty good first-hand experience of that within a few years of each other. When I had my car accident, previous to that, I was a young, pretty good-looking guy in phenomenal shape. I was a world-class athlete. And overnight, I was a guy that had a face that was distorted and a body that was distorted. And it was funny, we were driving to the plastic surgeon's. It was my first time out of the house. We were driving to the plastic surgeon's office for them to check me out, see how my nose was doing. And um, we pulled up to some girls that I knew from high school. And my best friend Brian and my mom were driving me. And, you know, I forgot how bad I looked. You know, even, even though you look bad on the outside, you're still the same on the inside. So I looked over at the car and kind of waved. And they looked like, you know, I thought they looked like they didn't feel good. <laughs> my friend Brian starts laughing. He goes, you almost made those young girls throw up. You need to put a bag over your head. But then within a couple of years of that, I was in Manhattan real estate. And I was fit, and I wore the nice suits and everything else. And I would walk into a meeting standing upright with a flat stomach, being in good shape, a little bigger than most of the guys. And I commanded, I commanded attention in those board meetings. You see, they didn't know that I didn't go to Harvard, Wharton, or Yale. All they knew was I was very confident. And that does carry over. And when you're not in good shape physically, the world notices that. You know, you get the you know, guys who are overweight. They can't even tuck their shirts in properly when they were wearing a suit. I think that reflects on, I am so, I, I think your book is fantastic for because I really think it's the most important issue of the day. And, I, and, and not only for individuals, but I mean, as a country, it, we can't tuck our shirts in, we're fat, we're overweight. It affects how, how effective we are in business or, or any other profession or whatever we choose to do. And we're not going to be able to do it well if we don't discipline ourselves, like you talk about in the book, and we don't have this mental and spiritual health as well as physical health. I think that it's, it's a huge, huge, I mean, I think it is the problem of the day. It's, I, I agree with you 100%. Obesity in this country, just the direct corresponding cost, you know, medical bills or whatever else, cost this country $147 billion a year yep. because people are obese. Now, the thing I think about, you know, President Kennedy said that physical fitness is not only the key to a healthy body, but it's the basis of dynamic and creative intellectual activity. And I think what President Kennedy was saying, if you want to be a really good thinker, then you need to get into the gym and be a bit of a stinker. But (laughs) I think when people are, and I'm not bashing people who are overweight, but the fact is, is creativity goes out the window when you're not physically fit. The same blood that runs through your body runs through your mind. So if you're not fit, you're not creative enough. You're not, you're, not, um, you're not able to get the things done that you need to get done on a timely basis. You know, everybody says we have a time management crisis on our hands. We don't have a time management crisis on our hands. We've got an energy management crisis on our hands. Because everybody's given the same 10,080 minutes in the week, and some people have time to change the world, and others barely have time to change their socks. Yeah. Energy management crisis, I have to remember that. We, we do. We have an energy management crisis. Now, Michelle Obama's trying to do something about that. Is any, are we? Is she? No. I don't think so. I know the person who's, re- who's running the President Council of Physical Fitness. I've called probably 25 times and never gotten a return phone call. Yeah. So if that's any indication of how effective they're doing with it, I, they're, they're falling asleep at the wheel. And I'm not criticizing the Obama administration. This is an overwhelming thing. But they have the President's Council of Physical Fitness, and for the first two years of his administration, it was closed down. Then they open it back up. Now, is Michelle Obama doing some good? At least she's got people talking about it. I don't know what she's doing firsthand. But she's got people talking about it. So at least she's making people aware of the issue. So I think by that, she's definitely doing a good job. 
you know, I, would, I don't want to criticize the president or his wife because I, mean, I couldn't even imagine the overwhelming issues they're going through today. And physical fitness is one of them. But it, needs to be, it does not need to be in the hands of government. It's called personal responsibility. If you look in the mirror and you're falling apart, do something about it. It's not the government's job to get you in shape. It's not the government's job to feed your kids. It's not the government's job to make sure you get out of bed and start walking. It's your job. So if we take personal responsibility for our own lives, I think the economy will turn around. But everybody's waiting for the government to do something. Well, what about the, the medical community? Do you have a lot of uh, – are you connected with them in any way? Because I don't see them as doing what they should be doing. Um, at least that's my personal experience and also in terms of business stuff. So why, what, what's the connection there? There's no connection because being healthy is not, is not a good um, business plan for doctors. Doctors make money because you're sick. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of doctors that consult with me, and I talk to them. But there are some doctors out there. My doctor, Dr. Kara Davis here in Raleigh, she's real proactive. you got Dr. Kenneth Cooper down in Texas with the Cooper Clinic. He endorsed my book as well, by the way. He's real proactive at wellness. There are little pockets of hope out there with doctors that are doing it, but medical schools don't know how to teach you how to eat and things like that. My advice when I tell people looking for a doctor is find a doctor who's fit. If the doctor walks out and he's fat, get up and leave because he, he doesn't, obviously doesn't think that being fit is important because he doesn't take care of himself. I, I have said that, too, and I, I don't get a real popular response, but I, I, have, a, I have that problem. I have two, my two doctors. Both of them are overweight, one in particular. And you're right. It's, I'm sitting there. I'm listening to him. I'm not. I'm thin. It's um, like you're telling, it's sort of like, uh, what are, you know, you're telling me what to do. You need to get into shape. I haven't said that to him yet, but now maybe I will. <laughs> Give him my book. <laughs> I'll give it. You know what? I will give it. I have an appointment tomorrow, a yearly <laughs> checkup, and I'm going to bring the book with me. Because and if you sit in his office, and he, it's a huge office, it's a big business, as you said, and he's got ten you know, people who are you know, secretaries or people who are on their computers, and you check in, and each one of them is more obese than the next. Yeah. And my, it was funny. My wife just had a doctor's appointment about two weeks ago. And I, I went with her. They had to put her out for a little bit. So I went with her. And the doctor came out and started talking to me. The guy was probably 65 years old in phenomenal shape. And all of the advice, and I, I didn't say anything about me being an author. I don't think he knew who I was right away. After a while, he, he found out who I was. But all the advice that he gave my wife was all nutrition advice. My mother-in-law passed away not too long ago from cancer, and it was a horrendous death. And the doctor, you know, basically told her how to eat. And, and that's the key. The key is we need to take care of ourselves. And it's sad that people get sick, but what we need to do is we take personal responsibility for ourselves, then we're going to be at the doctors a lot less. We're going to be, we're going to be healthy and energetic. And do I think the medical community needs to do something? Yeah, they probably do. But you know what? If you look at the, if you look at the um, diet industry alone, the diet industry alone is a $100 billion a year business. So, so is it all opinion, about the money? Yeah, yeah, it pays to confuse us. I get people. I get. I was on Martha Stewart the other day. I get people calling in and asking me, "Is sugar a carbohydrate?" People are so confused; they don't even know what a carbohydrate is anymore because the diet industry has made it confusing. But what about? And maybe you've said this word, but <laughs> choice isn't it? We do have choices, and we're making poor choices. And it's as you said, it's up to us to make good choices. I mean, don't most people know that if you gorge yourself and you eat portion portion control, that you eat four times what, even if it's good food, 
but if you eat four times more than what you need, you're going to get fat. You're going to well, gain weight. You just have to say no. You know, they just have to say no to drugs. You just have to say no to the food as well. Well, but what I see is people, even good people, people who would never dream of doing drugs or going out and going on a drinking binge or anything else, yet they'll use food as a drug. Most people that I find that I'm talking people who are severely overweight, they use, they use food as a drug. It's not that they're hungry all the time. They just use it. They binge. You know, one of the, I've, I've had the, the opportunity to work with some of the finalists from The Biggest Loser, and I don't want to say people's names because I don't want to embarrass them, but one of the guys was here at my, at my home for uh, dinner one night, and I asked him, I said, how did you get so heavy? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how could you even, I can't even imagine myself being 500 pounds. It would take a lot of work to get there, and I don't have the time to do it. <laughs> but, he said, but he said what he would do is, he goes, he goes, I would binge. He goes, I'd go to somebody's house to eat dinner, and I'd have some carrots and this or that. And people would always say, I don't know how fat he is. How did he get so heavy? Oh, he must have something wrong with his thyroid. He goes, but then he'd leave, and he'd go buy 10, 10 Big Macs, five things of large fries, and, and three large Cokes. And he'd eat that in his car, throw it in the garbage, and go home. So nobody could figure out how heavy he was getting. But he was using this as a drug. And I find most people who are doing this, when you eat, when you eat heavy foods, it acts as a, uh, as, a, as a depressant almost. It kind of calms you down. It's a, yeah, it's he, a drug. It's a, it, yeah, it's a drug. It's, it is. You're right. It is. It, 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 what's, it's, you know, it's not stimulating. It's the opposite. It does it depresses you. And I had a similar experience, uh, John, with, uh, I was at a meeting the other day and with a colleague, another radio person, who just lost a hundred and some odd pounds. And he told me that when he would go to, this is a golfing luncheon thing, that he, he would eat 25 hot dogs. 25 wow. hot dogs. I, I, and he, but he, you know, did this for years and years, and he was you know, 200 pounds overweight, and now has lost about 130 pounds, I guess. I bet he feels more in control of his life now that he's got control of his body. Well, he had to go through a crisis. His wife left him, divorced him. Uh, I mean, as he said, who wants to sleep with a 400-pound man? <laughs> when I gain an extra 10 pounds, my wife doesn't want me in any way near it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I have to be careful at my age, every, every ounce. But I'm, on the other end, obsessed with weighing myself every... But Eat, I always I eat well. But I also want to just, because we, we only have a few minutes left, because I just want to, there's a chapter in your book, of course, that I turn to immediately, which had the fastest way to succeed. And you talk about failing. Because this is, I think this is like, I want to end with this. Like, you know, it, people in our culture don't want to fail. And we teach kids don't fail, don't fail. But you say failure can really lead to great successes. And, like, you give these two great examples, um, one, a pharmaceutical company uh, and a product that they created because they failed at one product. Yeah. Start with that one. Well, that's, uh, I think it was uh, Cialis, right, or Viagra? Right, yeah. Yeah, they, they were creating that to do something with blood pressure, and then it became one of the most successful pharmaceutical products in the world. You know, failure does lead to success, but you mentioned something that's important. You said that we teach the kids. Now, as, as children growing up, at least with me, I learned that A was an A was good and an F was bad. So I was usually bad because I was more, especially in grammar school, towards the D and the F stage. And you learn that that doing that failing, you get in trouble at home, you get in trouble with the teachers, blah 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 blah. So what happens is you grow up and you're afraid to fail. 
And it's funny, when I talk to people, and this is 100% of the time, when I talk to people who are struggling with their finances or struggling in business, or, and it seems like they've got all the tools to do it, but they're not doing it, I'll always ask them, what were your grades in school? In fact, I did this on, the, on an airplane the other day with a guy sitting next to me. And I said, what were your grades in school? He goes, straight A's. I said, there's your problem. What do you mean? I said, straight A's. I said, you learn that being creative or doing anything outside of the box of your straight-A student is not good. So you want to do everything by the numbers. And when you do things by the numbers and you do everything just like everybody else, you don't stand out. And I, I owned the gym. And when we owned the gym, we ended up going out of business. It's a long story. We don't need to get into it. But somebody close to my family, it was a family member, came up to me, and he was needling me about me failing. And I said, you know, and I, and I was already employed in Manhattan real estate again at this point, but I said, listen, I said, you know, I said, I didn't fail. I learned a lot. I'll tell you, I got my master's degree in business, closing that business, because you learn a lot more when you're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars than when, you learn, when you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he goes, no, he goes, you're not smart enough to have a master's degree. He goes, you just failed. Plain and simple, you're a failure. I'm like, well, you know what? I look at my life and other people who are willing to go out and test the waters and try things, and they achieve greatness in life. And the people who I know that are close to me that are afraid of failure, like whether it be this man or anybody else, really haven't achieved anything in life. Okay, they got a job. They, you know, they did their job for however many years, and they did okay. And it doesn't make them bad people, but what happens is they get to the end of their life, and they really never tried to fulfill their dreams. And if you're afraid to fail, you'll never fulfill your dreams. And you'll never take those risks. I mean, don't we have great examples? Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, college uh, dropouts. Yeah, I love to use those because I didn't graduate college. Those are my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. You're up there with Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? And there's nothing wrong. You know, you talk to a Donald Trump who is not afraid of failure either. I had dinner with him last year. And a guy like that, you know, he went to to Wharton. And, you you know, he sent all of his, I think all of his kids but one went to Wharton. And he wants the higher education and all. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, as long as you don't take that into the business world with you. I think the best thing for people who graduate from these high-class high uh, schools, I think the best thing for them to do is to put their, put their uh, diploma in their drawer for the first year and then just go out there and work and forget where you were and start to go where you're supposed to be. Too many people, too many people rely on their assets, whether it be a degree or their pedigree or who their family is, instead of going out and trying to actually achieve something. And I think, that's, I think that's true failure when you're afraid to try. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Take the risk. Risks is another word. We've got to say goodbye, but I, I'll mention the book again, The Power of Positive Fitness, John M. Rowley, Maximizing Physical, Mental, and Spiritual Health, and website, powerofpositivefitness.com. That's perfect. You gave me a great commercial there. Thank you, Catherine. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm following your advice. And um, you're doing good stuff, and maybe uh, hopefully you'll save the world with this because I believe this is what we do have to do, and I, 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 uh, you're on the right track. Well, I appreciate it. If anybody's listening, when you go to that website, there's a whole bunch of free gifts that you can get there also. One guy, Sean Phillips, is giving away free protein samples. I've got Zig Ziglar. He's giving away some courses. Everybody there wants to see people succeed. So if you go to that site, you're going to get a whole bunch of free gifts besides being able to get my book. Terrific. I appreciate it. Catherine, thank you so much for having me on. Thank and you. We'll be doing this again soon. Yeah. Great talking to you. Thank You've been you. listening Bye-bye. to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you had a great morning. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at 
www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.